This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Smoke from forest fires raging in other states has made for awful air condition air conditions, that is, in the past few days. Colorado's had a relatively calm fire season, but that's just not the case across much of the rest of the West. The recent trend of more and bigger fires has continued. Journalist Michael Cotis has investigated. His new book is Mega Fire, The Race to Extinguish, a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. Cotis teaches at the University of Colorado, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. I understand as you were starting to work on this book several years ago, you lived in Chautauqua in Boulder, just under the Flatirons. And as you sit down to, to write about fire, you realize how close fire was getting to you. What happened? Well, I was actually moving into the cottage that I would spend uh, the academic year in in Chautauqua when I noticed the smoke and and dropped the boxes I was carrying and went up to the top of one of the flat irons to kind of see where the smoke was coming from and then uh, moved to an area where I could actually see the flames. And by then, um, the the fire that, you know, burned outside Boulder in 2010 on Labor Day was already burning down homes. You were witnessing that. It was actually the first time, even though you'd fought fires in your past, the first time you'd seen flames engulfing homes. Yeah. You know, um, uh, wildland firefighters are generally not supposed to be protecting homes. We're supposed to protect forests and grasslands and and vegetated landscapes. So while I encountered cabins and and helped to mitigate uh, them from flames that might approach them, I never had actually been in a fire where I saw a a home burn at all and certainly never saw a fire like we saw, you know, on Labor Day, that Labor Day, uh, destroy a number of homes. We will talk about your experience fighting fires in a bit. But that same year saw your brother's home in California burned down. Is that right? Um, actually, that was uh, that was about five years later. Ah. So as I was finishing the book, and uh, you know, that was one of the the challenges with writing a book like this. I'm a, I'm a journalist who likes to do things that are topical and developing. And uh, when you're writing a book, things that develop uh, as you're writing tend to force you to shred a lot of pages and start over. So I'd uh, finished the book uh, a few times and then had to go back and, and change things. And one of the incidents that uh, caused that was uh, hearing from my brother uh, that his uh, place that he lived in had burned in the Valley Fire in California. You write that Colorado broke the record for its most destructive fire every year for four years in a row, starting in 2012. One was the Waldo Canyon Fire outside of Colorado Springs. Did residents there have any idea that they were vulnerable? Well, most of the residents that lost their homes in Colorado Springs felt like they lived in suburbia. And they did. Um, you know, they lived on paved roads. Most of the trees that carried fire to homes were trees that they had planted. It was their landscaping that burned or, you know, the rails of a cedar fence that carried the fire to the home. So most of them had no idea that they lived in what we call the wildland urban interface where uh, homes risk burning in wildfires. And that's the first time we had seen uh, a wildfire turn into an urban firestorm in Cali- in Colorado. It's happened in California before and, and, uh, and I believe in Texas. But uh, Colorado had never seen a fire uh, behave like that and, and ignite a, a portion of a city. You've mentioned the wildland urban interface. So this is often where the city or the suburban areas meet the forest. There's been tremendous growth in those areas, making more people vulnerable to fire. Yeah. Um, the, the U.S. Forest Service a few years ago estimated that nearly a third of U.S. homes now are in the wildland urban interface where they risk burning in, in a wildfire. Um, a third of homes? Uh, yeah, across the country. 
Um, and in Colorado, uh, you know, uh, uh, a story I did back in 2012, um, we basically just laid census data over maps of what we call the red zone in Colorado, which are our most flammable forests. And that showed about 100,000 people in Colorado moving into our most flammable forests just in a 10-year period between 2000 and 2010. So that is one force, one trend behind uh, what you call mega fires. Climate change is also a part of this. And uh, there's also this idea that a, a canopy has built up of trees in part because for decades the U.S. put out so many fires. There was this policy that a fire be put out by, what, 10 a.m. the next day after it burned, after it began. Yeah, the the United States uh, basically declared war on wildfire uh, about a century ago after uh, a fire in 1910 called uh, the Big Blowup that uh, was about the size of Connecticut and burned in, in Montana and Idaho, uh, where a lot of the smoke that we're experiencing Colorado experiencing in Colorado right now is coming from. And uh, yeah, they eventually put in an out by 10 a.m. policy. Any natural wildfire that was seen across the country was supposed to be extinguished by 10 a.m. the next day, and in some forests in uh, in the U.S., particularly ponderosa pine forests in the southwest, in Arizona, New Mexico, and in parts of Colorado, that led to a huge buildup of fuels. So uh, ponderosa pine forests, uh, you know, a lot of them have a, a natural fire cycle of burning every 10 or 20 years. So if you put out every fire for a century, it's pretty easy math to see that you could easily, uh, you know, increase the fuel load in there tenfold. You write, uh, forests in Colorado's front range have missed three, four, or five fire cycles that would have thinned, thinned them during the last century. So to, to what extent has awareness of that history contributing to mega fires, has that changed policy in recent years, say at the, the Forest Service? It has changed policy. It's challenging to change policy the right way because what has happened in the United States is the government, the Forest Service in particular, but there are several land management agencies that are involved in fighting wildfire, the yep. Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, the, you know the nature of the federal bureaucracy is to look for blanket policies. But our forests are, are very, very diverse, you know, different types of trees and different types of forests have different types of fire. So uh, when we reintroduce fire into these forests, some forests are really overgrown. And if you can safely reintroduce fire in them, you can thin them out and, and get a natural fire cycle burning in them. Again, you know, uh, a lot of ponderosa pine forests are like that. Okay, so that, that has happened to some extent. To some extent. But other forests really have not shown um, an increase in fire severity due to excess suppression, as they call it, putting out too many fires. And and these forests probably always had infrequent but very severe, you know, what we would call today megafires. And reintroducing fire into those forests is not going to change the fire behavior in them. Um, one study uh, that came out a couple of years ago showed that just uh, about 16 percent of front range ponderosa pine forests showed an increase in fire severity due to the fires that were extinguished in them in the past. Now, the other side of that is that 16 percent where we put out fires and and cause fires to get worse in the future is precisely where we like to live and build the most mountain homes. Ah, I see. So that's critical landscape. Exactly. Uh, and reintroducing fire it can be tricky. And it, of course, we saw that with the Lower North Fork fire in Jefferson County in 2012. That was a prescribed burn. 
that got out of control. Briefly, what happened there? Well, it was a prescribed burn in a time of year when usually it's a, a really good time to do that. It you know, was basically right at the uh, beginning of spring. You know, Usually there's a lot of snow on the ground still and the temperatures are low. It's easy to control and extinguish one of these fires. Um, but uh, that year was a historic drought. The mountains got far less snow. And so uh, they had the prescribed burn. The Colorado State Forest Service managed it for uh, Denver Water on Denver waterboard land, and it is really important to protect those watersheds. And, and yeah, it was with this overgrowth in mind that they did this. Yeah. Um, and they extinguished the fire and everything seemed to have gone pretty well. Um, a few days later, uh, we had uh, what we call a red flag warning, which is basically that we've got uh, 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 extreme fire weather coming on. So the temperatures rose a lot, the humidity uh, plummeted, and we had uh, very strong winds come in. And the fire that they thought was basically out uh, reignited and uh, burned into the forest and burned into a neighborhood in Jefferson County, killing three of its residents and destroying a number of homes. And this is emblematic of the fact that the fire season has essentially grown by two months in Colorado uh, because of meteorological factors. Climate change is a part of that. Uh, so where do you land then on this this question of reintroducing fire into landscapes? It sounds like it can both work but also be dangerous. What's what's the answer there? Well, it, it's a very tricky process reintroducing fire into these landscapes. But one thing to recognize is that uh, fire is natural to all of these vegetated landscapes and many forests, basically any forest, uh, needs a fire cycle just like it needs a rain cycle. It doesn't need fire as often as it needs rain, but fire keeps it healthy. So they're going to burn one way or another and trying to figure out how we can reintroduce fire in a safe way at a time of year when it's moist and there's snow on the ground so that we can have fire that is uh, easy to deal with and uh, less threatening to near by residents, perhaps uh, in which, uh, you know, in cases where we can uh, manage the smoke so that it's not, uh, you know, causing a lot of health problems for people in the area, is probably going to be more uh, uh, easy for society to deal with than just waiting for the bad fire to ignite in really serious fire weather in the middle of the summer when we have no chance of dealing with that fire. But it sounds like you don't think the federal government has yet found the right balance there or identified the right plan to do that. Uh, yeah, I don't think many governments have, have found the right balance there. And one reason for that is that uh, these burns are incredibly expensive. Dealing with an overgrown forest is far more expensive than anybody anticipated when we started to think about this you know, 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, but isn't it really expensive to put out an enormous fire that threatens homes and that isn't uh, sort of planned and controlled? Of course it is. But uh -huh. then we're responding to it as a disaster and it's come up. And so now the expense is something that, you know, we, we run into our coffers and get the money because we have to, as opposed to trying to get politicians to approve spending a huge amount of money to prepare for a disaster that may or may not happen in the future. Speaking of money, what, what do we spend as a country on wildfire? Is it more, less than it than it has been, and is it money 
well spent? Are we directing it in the right way? So um, we have seen um, an increase in expenditure on wildfire that pretty much parallels the huge increase in wildfire that we've seen in the last 30 or 40 years in the West. Um, uh, in 1995, the Forest Service spent about 16 percent of its budget on wildfires. In uh, 2015, they spent 52 percent of their budget oh. on wildfires. Um, it, from the 90s to now, um, you know, in the early 90s, on average, we spent about $300 million dealing with wildfires, and that generally includes, um, you know, preparing for them, fighting them, helping landscapes recover from them after the fact. If you add that all up now in a bad fire year, we spend uh, $3 billion or more on wildfires. So the costs are, are escalating rapidly. But it sounds like a lot of that is spent on fighting fires uh, in, in that kind of disaster mindset as opposed to the preventative efforts. Am I right about that? Yeah. And uh, as we increase the costs, that gets worse because what generally happens is uh, the government uh, runs out of money to fight wildfires around this time of year, August or September, and they have to go to other funds to get enough money to continue the fights. We ran out of money about a month ago to fight wildfires in the U.S. Oh, wow. And so they gut other funds. The, the, if you're kind, uh, they call it uh, fire borrowing. If you're a firefighter who's frustrated by it, uh, the, the first firefighters who talked to me about it called it the annual fire theft. And the funds that they get to continue fighting fires first come from the very budgets that we need to prepare for wildfires. So the, the, the budgets for mitigating and preparing for future wildfires get emptied to fight the fires that we have right now. I want to talk about wildfire globally. Have other countries had had that kind of smoky bear put out the fire? suppression policy like the U.S.? Um, uh, not quite as aggressive as our Smokey Bear policy. I don't think that uh, – uh, and, and that's maybe unfair to Smokey Bear to call it his policy, but our government's policy of basically being at war with wildfire. There's certainly uh, nations out there that are very aggressive with wildfire and have fought a lot of fires. Sometimes the forest management issues in other countries aren't so much that they put out so many fires and made the forest get overgrown, but it's what they plan planted in the forest. So, um, for instance, I went and covered a fire in Israel, which was their greatest natural disaster. It was a fire in uh, 2010 that uh, killed 44 people, including a police commissioner, the police chief of Haifa, uh, 36 prison guards, all, all official people that died in this fire. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't think of Israel as having a wildfire problem, right. but almost 70 percent of their forests have been planted in the last century or so. And so they've planted pine trees, uh, both because they wanted to have a more forested landscape and in some cases because they thought they would have timber industries that would grow out of that. And now that those pine trees have matured, they've actually found that they're uh, a, a terrible fire hazard when they're planted in dry and arid landscapes like Israel. You found in Indonesia that there's a character that's kind of their version of Smokey the Bear who's an orangutan. Yeah, they have a nice patch on their shoulders of the fire service there that's a, that's an orangutan, which is, you know, an orangutan's already an orange creature. And, uh, you know, the orangutan with flames behind him is, is, is quite dramatic. But the Indonesian issue with wildfire is also tied to us. Um, they uh, had fires. Uh, they have fires every year. Uh, they're all human started and then they often lose control of them. They're started for agriculture to clear fields for things like palm oil. And uh, back here in the United States, about half of the products that we can get in any of our grocery stores have palm oil in them. 
um, the fires uh, uh, put a haze over Southeast Asia every year. But in 2015, the fires were so serious that for about 40 days, Indonesia was putting out more greenhouse gases from their wildfires than the entire U.S. economy was putting out. Oh, my. We have talked about fires on the front range, and I think that's often what comes to mind when I think about homes encroaching on forests. But you also write about a big fire on the eastern plains, the Hartstrong Fire in 2012, I believe. What what interested you about that? Well, I I grew up in Kansas, and fire is really important in the landscape I came from. Uh, Ranchers from as far away as Mexico still bring their cattle up to Kansas to graze on burned fields there because the cattle can gain between 10 and 20 percent more weight when they graze on grass that's in a recently burned field. And so I, I grew up kind of seeing fires intentionally set on on ranch land to to revitalize the grasses. But when I heard about this fire, the, the Hartstrong fire and saw the photographs of it, this was not anything like I'd seen before. It looked like something out of a monster movie. And a family of firefighters were, were burned over in that. And that really fascinated me um, because, um, you know, here in Colorado, more than half of the firefighters are volunteers with little operations like the ones that the, the family I write about in the book uh, were in. And, and you write that this family was essentially about 40 percent of this firefighting force. Right. And so, you know, anytime there was a response to a, a fire, sometimes it would be all members of the same family that were responding to this. And you can, you know, see the risk with that if something horrible was to happen, what it would do to a family like that. And also the devotion of farmers and ranchers who have pretty hard jobs already to maintain a, a, a firehouse and maintain the firefighting equipment and go out and help their neighbors. And that's something we don't see a lot of uh, in, in the media coverage, not because the media doesn't choose to cover it, but because these grass fires are often so fast that by the time the television cameras get out there, it's over. But the people who dealt with that are almost always volunteers working out on the plains in little uh, fire uh, uh, departments that they put together and invest a lot in. And I thought that that was a really good place to start writing about Colorado's fires was with a family of volunteers. This is the Struckmeyer fire. And I think at one point they were at the funeral for their grandmother and a fire call came in. They quickly finished the funeral and then decided to fight the fire. Right. Yeah. yeah. The Struckmeyer family out there uh, had a, a, a lot of their regular day-to-day life interrupted by fires that they had to deal with out on the plains. Do you see positive signs at all in how this country is approaching fires, fire mitigation, fire response um, yeah, it's been very, very slow. And, um, you know, some of it is going to be forced on us for the wrong reasons, like costs. We're just going to run out of money to deal with fires that, uh, the way that we do. One positive change has been um, policies like being able to manage a fire for multiple objectives. And, you know, fire is really important to a lot of our wildernesses. And there's, you know, both uh, too much of the wrong kind of fire in this country. But we also have a fire deficit in a lot of forests, like in our wilderness, where they need more fire to, to be healthy. A lot of animal species depend on severely born, burned forests for habitat. And so now uh, fire managers can manage a fire for multiple objectives. So you can choose one flank and say, hey, this threatens a resource that we depend on, like a watershed mm. or maybe infrastructure or homes. And we're going to fight the fire really hard on this flank. But on this other flank where it's burning into this wilderness area and we don't have a lot of homes or infrastructure at risk, we can let this fire 
fire go for a little bit and do good work for us, maybe make the next fire less severe. And that's going to be a lot more cost effective and it's actually going to be good environmentally for that particular area. I see. So one fire can have multiple dimensions, multiple uses. You write about something called the fire industrial complex, I guess is like the military industrial complex, the idea that people are profiting off firefighting policies, which don't always make sense from a scientific or societal point of view. And you write about uh, aircraft in particular. Colorado's legislature appropriated about $20 million to buy firefighting planes a few years ago. Was that a waste of money? Um, I don't think it was uh, all over its entirety, a waste of money. Some of the things they invested in make a lot of sense. You know, one plane that helps them find fires much more quickly makes a lot of sense to most of the firefighters I interviewed about that. It essentially um, does fire surveillance, looking out for fires. Right. And so it's a plane that you can mobilize very quickly. It's small. And, uh, you know, for instance, the Waldo Canyon fire, one reason that that blew up was that they had great difficulty finding that fire for almost a day. So uh, uh, an aircraft that can fly over that with really sensitive instruments that can pinpoint exactly where the fire is and let firefighters know where to go. That makes a lot of sense to most of the firefighters I've talked to. Although Canyon was in 2012 outside Colorado Springs. Right. Um, uh, however, sometimes, you know, like investments in larger air tankers, which I don't think we have bought for Colorado, but the, uh, some legislators are asking for, we've never really come up short of aircraft when we've needed them to fight fires in, in the state. Now, there's a fear as we have more and uh, more severe fires, we're going to need more aircraft. But a lot of firefighters think it's kind of nuts for us to spend a lot of money on large air tankers that take a long time to mobilize are incredibly expensive. And you Usually we can get them from the usual contractors nationally that we need them for. I see, as opposed to the state owning and operating. Yeah. So that investment, uh, some firefighters thought, was not necessarily well placed. Well, before we go, I want to ask you a question as a firefighter, because you actually worked on a crew several years ago. What are some of the more unexpected things you learned as a wildland firefighter that you think, I don't know, anyone living in Colorado should know. I think of the fact that the blackened, burned area is the safest place to be. Sure, you know, you know, being in the black is is the safe zone. So going to where the fire has already burned everything away, that's a place where you can survive the fire. It's unlikely to be able to get back in there. It doesn't have much left to burn there. Um, and so, yeah, uh, lots of uh, firefighting safety issues and fire behavior. Uh, um, issues that I learned about were, were fascinating. But what really kind of uh, blew my mind and, and got me really interested in investigating the topic was how often economics or cultural issues were playing into how we fought fires. So, you know, I dealt with people who, uh, you know, at one point I was on a fire in Colorado where a, a young boy got up and sang a song thanking the firefighters for saving his house. And when I commented, boy, that was really cute. That's, you know, really heartwarming. And one of the gruff veteran firefighters I was with said, yeah, he sang it better last year. It's like every time we come to this area, this kid gets up and sings a song thanking us and his family's home's never really been threatened, but they make a lot of money when the firefighters are here. And so they really like it when we come back. Uh, from the, the groups of firefighters there that require services and meals. And right, like exactly. That there's, you know, an economic boost. In fact, some of the firefighters I was with called it fire tourism dollars. 
So, um, you know, there's that, there, you know, there's the fact that, you know, politicians play a huge role in what we choose to, uh, where we choose to fight fires and sometimes for, uh, for strange reasons. Um, in one case, one fire we were on, we learned was being fought because, uh, uh you know, uh, somebody in, uh, in Washington had a fishing trip planned to the area and they w- didn't want any smoke in the air when, uh, when they were having their fishing trip. It was Dick Cheney. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for being with us, Michael. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Michael Cotes is an award-winning photojournalist and reporter. He helps lead CU's Center for Environmental Journalism. And we talked about his new book, Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. He will be at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax in Denver tonight. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Could tent cities be a way to address homelessness? They can be built faster and cheaper than permanent shelters, but they're also banned in many Colorado communities. Durango, though, is thinking of creating one. Mayor Dick White says it would be a, quote, sensible way to get people back on their feet. Housing costs in Durango are very high. Uh, There's a population of people who simply cannot afford rent. They are our neighbors. And the question is then, how do we support our neighbors? The approach is unorthodox, as Nicole Martinez will tell you. She's with a nonprofit in Las Cruces, New Mexico, that's behind a sanctioned homeless camp there. In the beginning, I felt like we were going backwards by putting people in tents. But very quickly, I saw that we created a space where we could transition people from homelessness to housing. Camp Hope opened in Las Cruces in 2011. If you walked with me to the entrance of Camp Hope you would see a camp office, and that camp office has solar on it. You would see tents on elevated tent pad sites. You'd see a total of 45 of those. There are also gardens that the camp residents tend, a community kitchen, and bathrooms with toilets and showers. Martina says the tents won't end homelessness. Permanent housing with lots of support is the answer, she says, but Camp Hope has kept people off the streets. As soon as we have enough housing for everyone, I would be the first to tear the camp down. Until we are able to meet that need, we plan to continue providing shelter and providing services in the way that we are able to. Now, one reason Durango has its eye on Camp Hope is that just outside Durango city limits, a homeless tent camp sprung up. It was illegal at first, and it doesn't have all those accommodations. Nearby residents were getting upset, including Paul Maruzak. About a year after we moved into our house, we really started noticing a big uptick in traffic. We would hear and see people coming up the street just being loud and and drunk and just generally obscene. His neighbors have reported people passing out on their property or knocking on their doors asking for help. And so the sheriff in La Plata County, where Durango is, stepped in. Not to shut this camp down, but to keep it open with some ground rules. And now there's this idea to move that camp into town, closer to services, and to build something that looks more like Camp Hope in New Mexico. Lieutenant Edward Aber of the La Plata County Sheriff's Office is on the phone. He has taught the campers there essentially how to govern themselves. Campers like Tom Bates, who's been homeless for about three years. They're on the phone with us, and gentlemen, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. 
Thank you for being with us. Lieutenant Aber, take me back a few years when you decided to help make an area where homeless people were already camping into a legit campsite. What led you to do that rather than asking them to leave? Well, the the county owns some property that has always been used uh, for homeless camping. Uh that property, we didn't have any regula- regulations or ordinances that prohibited camping on county property. Uh, in the fall of 2014, the Board of County Commissioners passed an ordinance that prohibited on ca- prohibited camping on county property that um, unless there was written permission. In the spring of 2015, we actually had. Uh, two bear attacks um, that really prompted uh, me to try to come up with some solutions. Law enforcement's approach to homeless camping in the in the past was always camp eradication, and uh, I've been in this law enforcement community and grown up, have grown up in Durango, and as long as I can remember, we've just chased camps around, and it didn't. And then law enforcement would do the cleanups of abandoned camps, and there was a lot of trash and a lot of uh, refuge and and stuff that would just get abandoned, and we would end up having to uh, clean that area up and and chase the problem around some more. So after the bear attacks, I kind of formed a coalition with all the local law enforcement agencies and said, "What what can we do different?" Huh. And the idea of, of creating something that was more permanent meant that you wouldn't have to chase after camps that sprung up. You could ensure people's safety, especially, I suppose, in light of those bear attacks, and, and manage the issue as opposed to chase after it. And why was it important to you that it be self-governed? I find that fascinating. It's it's really been an evolution. Um, so we have a very active trail system. Uh, that also runs through this county property, and we had a lot of negative interaction between trail users and and people that were surviving um, by camping. And so the first year was really to try to get uh, the campers relocated to an area that was off of the trails, out of sight, out of mind. I had five rules for this area. They were pretty simple rules. Um, Give me an example of one or two of them. Uh, no criminal. Don't don't be involved in crim, engage in criminal activity. Um, pack your trash out. Keep your camp small so that if you do leave, you take everything that you brought with you out. Um, those were three of them. Huh. And the the self-governing idea. Why did you think that was the way to go, as opposed to I don't know, assigning a detail. Well, Tom Tom has been involved with engaged with me this entire time and as a leader in that community, uh his ability to influence other homeless campers uh was greater than my ability to influence huh. them. Well, let's talk to Tom. So this is Tom Bates uh and uh, Tom, I'm interested in why you were interested yourself in managing a camp like this. Well, it actually never started out as me managing anything. Uh-huh. It all started out when I read articles in the newspapers about 
bear attacks uh, that had happened, and it just uh, just escalated from there. And I knew that I could, I knew that I could help. I want to say that you ended up homeless after you lost your job as an electrician and got divorced and and understand you've you've been homeless for about three years. So describe your role at the camp and and maybe a little bit about what it looks like. There are 47 tents, I think, on on this site in in La Plata County. Yeah, and all that is true. And and. The bottom line is simply this: it's it's what brings people out into homelessness begin to to begin with, and that is because at some point in their life, they lost hope, pure and simple. And you can empathize with it, you can be sympathetic to it, but unless it's actually happened to you, you can't really understand it or grasp it. And when I read that article. That's where a little glimmer of my hopes actually started coming back, and I've protected that hope, and this is how it is today. And the the reason that this is actually working, no, it's not perfect, but no community is perfect. But it's because people now have a sense of hope that they are willing to protect to and help intensify and gain strength in. So they feel invested in this place. And does it mean that they follow the rules that uh, yes. Lieutenant Aber has set out? So they're, they're good about not engaging in criminal activity and moving their trash out. That's, that's not been difficult to enforce? No. I mean, you're, you're going to get people that refuse to clean up after themselves in any neighborhood, so to speak. And we have had few problems like that, but nothing major, nothing like like 17 truckloads of trash being hauled out like we've had in the past, or 15 or 10. Uh, for the most part, people are keeping themselves camp clean, where Ms. Lieutenant Aber had five rules. We now have like 17 rules. Hmm. So... Uh, you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a tent camp for folks who are homeless in La Plata County, just outside Durango. There's some talk about potentially moving that into Durango, closer to services. There's no timeline or specific plan for that yet, but it's something that the mayor is interested in. And we're talking uh, with Lieutenant Edward Aber of the La Plata County Sheriff's Department, who helped make this homeless camp legit, and with Tom Bates, who's a resident and a camp host. It's self-governed. And uh, Lieutenant Aber, have, have there been people uh, kicked out for not following the growing list of rules? There have been. And, and I'll, just, I'll just say that this population is the one that created these 17 rules, um, huh. kind of formed a homeless council and, and said... We'd like to have some a registration process, and we'd like to have some rules. You guys come up with those. Um, they they brought them to me in a completed version, along with some kind of governing uh, enforcement what the camp hosts are. So every every year it gets tweaked and improved on, and we learn lessons from the previous year what was working and what wasn't. Um, I think probably one of the biggest impacts. 
has been the relationship that's been built between the sheriff's office and and the community. Um, you know, when I first started going to Manasoup Kitchen and making presentations, I might as well have been from another planet. Um, now, when I go to Manasoup Kitchen, I better have an hour, hour and a half because people want to talk to me and engage. You're saying the relationship between law enforcement and the homeless community, that yes. soup kitchen, I think, is just down the road from the camp. Yes. And what's the importance of those relationships? Why does that make a difference? Um, you know, it, it goes back to what Tom said, that that hope element. I mean, I've had I, I've had somebody call me at six o'clock in the morning and say, I need help. Um, I, I, I have to quit drinking and I don't know anybody else to turn to. Can you help me? Um, you know, then making those connections with the resources we do have in our community. I've been able to help several people get, obtain jobs. Um, about 60% of the people that are staying on the Hill right now, uh, do have some type of employment. Oh, interesting. Uh, they're on they're on housing lists. Um, I've got an elderly gentleman that's staying on the hill. He's on the list for housing. Uh, it's a three year wait. My goodness! Uh, and so, though this may be temporary, the idea of living in a tent community—if the list for permanent housing is that long—temporary, I suppose, takes on new meaning, doesn't it, Tom? Yes, sir. It really does. Um. There's here in Durango. There's really not enough, like in the way of permanent housing, or you got to go on a list, and that's mainly what I'm pushing for now. And I'm trying to not be political about doing it, but these are the things that help give people their hope. Because, like I said earlier, that once you give somebody that back their hope. In some fashion, they're going to do whatever it takes. And then they can address other issues like maybe alcohol or drugs or mental, because those are just contributing factors of what people give into. And that's the idea behind moving the camp potentially further into Durango so that you might be closer to services. I'd love your thoughts on on what that would look like, whether you like the idea, Lieutenant. We're, the area that we're currently in is is a, a, a wooded area that's on about 30 acres. Um, access to it is very difficult. Mm-hmm. The fire risk is huge um, because it does a, a, is adjacent to town itself. That that creates some safety concerns. Um, if somebody were to have a heart attack up there uh, and and need medical assistance, uh, you really need to call search and rescue out to get them evacuated out of the area. So it is a it is a remote area, and access is very limited, and that creates uh, some huge challenges. Controlling that is huge. Um, you know, we haven't really wrapped our head around that we have a homeless camp. We're just allowing people to survive in in an area that that they've been surviving in for years. So moving it into Durango might ease some of those issues. Uh, Tom Bates, just briefly before we go, your thoughts on moving it into town? 
I've kind of got mixed feelings about that. In one way, I see it being a good thing, but in another sense, I see it in being a, a bad thing because actually anybody that's lived, living in, in, in a tent doesn't want to be more of a spectacle than they already are because they live in a tent. Huh. And that that could increase their visibility and perhaps, yeah, the stigma that goes along with homelessness. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us and uh, introducing us to this community. Okay, thank you very much for your time. We heard from Lieutenant Edward Aber of the La Plata County Sheriff's Office, and that was Tom Bates there, who helps govern a campsite for people who are homeless. As we said, Durango is still a ways out from establishing a sanctioned tent city. Mayor Dick White says it likely won't happen this year. Several locations are under consideration. It's not clear who would fund or oversee the site at this point. Construction workers in Thornton were moving dirt for a new police station last month when they uncovered something unusual, a dinosaur, a triceratops that walked the earth 66 million years ago. The skeleton is being carefully excavated with little brushes and knives, and Joe Sertich has been doing some of the digging himself. He's dinosaur curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. You have brought a piece of this... Triceratops with you. What yeah, am I, this is what one, am I looking at? This is one of the first bones we've pulled from the site. This is the very front of the lower jaw. And on a Triceratops, that would have been a beak, a lot like a parrot. Wow. I will uh, tweet this, CPR Warner, this photo. Um, and so some of this is on display already at the museum. Is that right? Yeah. The first pieces are up in our window in our in our preparation lab so people can visit them there and see – some of the first things being opened and cleaned. Remind us what a Triceratops was. So Triceratops is one of those big iconic dinosaurs that I think every kid knows about. Uh-huh. It's the one with the, the big horns the over the eyes. The listeners under 10 are like, Ryan, that's a, <laughs> it's a lame question. Super easy. Yeah, the horns over the eyes. It's got a little one on the nose and then a big shield or frill behind the head. Uh, how much longer do you think excavation will occur on this site? So over the last few days, we've hit kind of the mother load of the skull. So we have most of a skull, I'd say at least 80 or 90 percent. All the bones are showing up disarticulated. That means the, the skull has fallen into pieces. Um, but that's great for us. We get to collect the pieces and prep them out. And then we'll be able to essentially snap them back together like a, a Lego set. Hmm. And, and you know enough about Triceratops that that's not a terribly difficult endeavor to repiece. No, we have a lot of Triceratops. It's one of those famous dinosaurs from the American West. And so yeah. we can just snap it back together. Which leads me to the question of how unusual a discovery like this is in Metro Denver in particular. Well, that's a great question. Dinosaurs are known all over the metro area. We have Triceratops from places like Littleton and Broomfield. But to get a complete skull is really un- un- uncommon. What's going on at the site now? Is there any construction or is that totally on hold while the excavation takes place or what? Well, one of the great things is we like to partner with the construction companies and make sure we don't hold up the schedule. And so the construction is going along just as planned. They've put a little fence around our crew and they're out there right now with excavators and bulldozers going all around them. Um, But it's a really good partnership and it shows that we're not going to slow down your project if you do find a dinosaur. So we want you to report it. Report it. Yes, You get calls from uh, just uh, private homeowners or? Yeah, we get calls from all kinds of people. In fact, just last year, a father and son kicked up a mammoth tusk right in the bottom of Cherry Creek. It was just sitting in the sand and they brought it in and it's now part of our permanent collections. 
What about our region makes it so good for finding dinosaur bones? Well, as you make mountains, you also bury dinosaurs. And so this time period, 66 million years ago, you were lifting the first Rockies and all of that sediment, all the sand, all the mud, all the gravel was washing down the front range and covering dinosaur ecosystems. And we're able to dig those up. Okay. So we can look to our mountains and thank them. Uh, Will you learn anything new about Triceratops or is that like covered? We know Triceratops well enough now. Well, we know a lot about Triceratops. It's one of the most common dinosaurs. We have tons of skulls, probably numbering in the hundreds. And those are mostly from the north. Here in the Denver area, we're at the southern end of their range. Okay. And so that'll tell us a little bit about what's going on at the extreme margins of their range. Uh, maybe they're a different size. Maybe they're doing different things than they are in the north in places like Montana. Is there security at the site? Do people want to steal a dinosaur? <laughs> Yeah, uh, fortunately, since this is a public safety facility that's being built, uh, the police are very keen to keep an eye on it. And so we've had 24-hour security um, by the Thornton Police Department. And there have been people trying to get on site. It's pretty much a constant stream of people coming Mm. and trying to either talk their way on or sneak on. Uh, I think mostly to see the, the fossil. I don't think they're trying to do anything malicious. I remember also just loving dinosaurs as a kid, maybe even thinking about a career in dinosaurs, um, and then hearing about how excruciating the work can be (laughs) and how delicate it can be. Just take us into what that is like on site. Yeah, so we have a huge crew of people. We all specialize in different aspects of dinosaur paleontology. We have volunteers from the museum who we've trained to, to dig and once you discover a site, the first thing you do is is explore. So you want to see where all the bones are coming out. You want to get an idea of how you're going to essentially separate the site into smaller jackets. And we do what we call field jacketing, where we cover the bones with protective plaster and burlap. And then we pull those back to the museum. We have a whole other set of volunteers who do the prep, that hard, uh, tedious work of needles and pins and microscopes and getting all that crusted rock off of these bones. Needles and pins? We use really simple uh, tools that have been used for over 150 years. All of the paleontology tools are basically unchanged from the dawn of, of this science. Okay, so I'm going to pick back up this portion of the jaw, which you described as something like a beak. And it's pretty heavy. What do you think that is? About, I don't know, 10 pounds 10 or pounds, something? Yeah. Uh, how fragile is what you're digging out of the ground? Well, this Thornton specimen is really unique. It's a really beautifully preserved skeleton and skull. It's really hard bone, and it's in great soft rock. Uh, that means we're able to get it out quickly. We won't really impact the, the schedule. And we're going to have a really beautiful specimen that we'll be able to share with everyone in Colorado, hopefully, in the next couple of months. Okay. And it'll be interesting to see it put together and then to understand its size, again, because this might be a smaller version of Triceratops. Yeah, we, it's, it looks like a sub-adult, but it's, it's got... A sub-adult? Is that, is that a dinosaur teen? <laughs> that is a dinosaur teen or a young adult. Um, and it does look smaller than some of the other ones that we know from other parts of the West. But that's, that's the science that'll, that'll happen after we get it through the lab, after we get it cleaned. Yeah, and one of the earliest triceratops I think ever identified was found near Denver in 1887. Yeah, and that was found in the Confluence Park area, uh, right on the side of the Platte River. Uh, basically right outside of downtown Denver. And that one was misidentified as a bison. This was back before we knew what horned dinosaurs really looked like. So this was called the tall-horned bison um, by the first describers. And it was actually Triceratops. It turned out it was actually the horns above the eye of a Triceratops. Speaking of the horn, you found the horns. 
Yeah, we now have yeah. both of those big horns. What are they made out of? They're just like a It's a tusk. lot like a cow. So it's a, a bony horn core, and over that would have been another material that doesn't preserve, a lot like your fingernails, a keratin material. Okay. Uh, how excited are you right now? What's, what's your state of mind? Oh, to find a dinosaur right here in the metro area and be able to share the story of Denver's dinosaurs with everyone is that's a dream come true for a curator. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks so much. Joe Sertich is curator of dinosaurs at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, and he and his team are excavating a triceratops skeleton found at a construction site in Thornton. As we said, some of those bones are already on display at the museum. You can see that Triceratops jaw on Twitter at CPR Warner. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters.